This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts. Footballers. Scientists. Shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world. Part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Let's get started. For 30 years, the bread and butter of my work was negotiation. So, how to sum up the art, the practice, the performance of negotiation? It's not easy. And believe me, I'm leaving out much more than I've included. In the end, I think it's all about the relationship. That's what makes it tick. Can you trust the person sat across the table from you? And if you can't trust them entirely, can you at least have an honest conversation? And if you can't do either of those things, what can you do to put yourself in a position where you can? I think I will always believe that the only true prism through which to understand negotiation is power. The balance of power between all the parties involved. But real power is more than just a crude calculation of relative strength. I mean, if we get into a scrap, a dispute, then the dynamics change. You want to win. You need to win. The room for manoeuvre and compromise constricts dramatically while the stakes expand in direct proportion. But like all relationships, unions and employers get so much more out of them if they're based on certain key qualities. Respect, for example, evidence-based policy positions, honesty, trust, all things that sometimes seem in very short supply. Now, you don't want to be so relaxed that you get accused of being in bed with the employer, although I have known some cases where that was literally true, or so naive that you end up selling the jerseys, as they say. You do need, though, to be able to respect each other's confidences, speculate on possible blue sky or out-of-the-box ideas and solutions. This is particularly so for the individual cases that make up so much of many reps' working lives. There may be no contractual entitlement, no legal obligation, no reason for an employer to do what you are asking, apart from the fact that it's you doing the asking. The same is often true in collective situation. Yes, an employer's willingness and, more importantly, ability to meet a pay or some other claim is fundamental. A well-constructed and presented case is vital. But when you're looking for the final element that you know will turn a proposal into a good deal, 
That's particularly when the strength of the relationship between negotiators can be the crucial ingredient. It's really all about negotiating with someone rather than against them. I've heard much talk over the years about the art of negotiation. That's fair enough in the sense that it certainly isn't a science, and there's no universally recognised formal qualification. But what sort of art? The truth is that there are as many different forms and styles as there are artists. Some of them can be breathtaking, inspiring to see at work. I've been lucky and privileged to count as colleagues and mentors, people like that. Take Jeannie Drake, now Baroness Drake. She would engage her negotiating counterparts in a multi-layered game of chess, teasing them out, generating a false sense of comfort, and then moving in for the killer, overwhelmingly logical, irresistible argument, and then mopping up even further concessions or gains, whilst the other side was still trying to work out just what the hell had happened to them. Billy Hayes seemed more instinctive, I say seemed because he was always extremely well prepared and would interject incisively with a proposal seemingly conjured out of nowhere in order to break a deadlock, like an artist painting a bold swirl of bright colour, transforming their canvas. But all good, effective negotiations depend on getting the right choreography for the occasion. And that's as much about personal style as context. It's not necessary or essential to overthink this. Often we can't choose the context, or at best only exert limited influence over it. Frequently we act on instinct or habit, and our best laid plans for handling the situation often go out the window. Sometimes our approach, whether pre-planned or not, just doesn't work. For sure, there are some negotiators who are just born, but the rest of us have to find our voice, our style, But the vibe on the union side has some distinctive features. Some have said that you can always tell which room the union reps are in during any adjournment as opposed to the employer. The latter will be as glum as a tomb, whereas we will be in good humour, even if the situation is bleak. Something to do with being on the side of the virtuous, I think. So, choreography is key. And in most dances, you need a degree of flexibility, a suppleness. Don't ever be tempted to ignore this, would be my advice. Born of this experience. The London Underground Northern Line, that's the black one, runs up through southwest London in a fairly straight line. Tooting, Balham, Clapham, and then, just after Clapham North... The line kinks. Above ground, the A3 widens into the broad sweep of Clapham Road as it heads up towards the Stockwell roundabout. The diversion was necessary, so it's been said, to avoid an old burial ground long disused but still toxic by the time the tunnelers got to work in the 1920s. Decades later, two contractors clambered down a manhole shaft without the means to check whether the air was breathable at the bottom, still less the ability to stay alive if it wasn't. Tragically, it wasn't. Manhole covers were padlocked shut, and there was a standoff about what would constitute a safe system of work between us and the employer. No way, no, and never was the members' view about the possibility of so-called loan working in any of these holes. That is to say, there would always need to be at least two people attending any job that required unlocking the manhole cover and going down the steps. Oh, and by the way, 
We also wanted the lab report into the atmospheric conditions before we'd even think about allowing anyone anywhere near there. You tell them! I was emphatically instructed. No acceptance of these preconditions, no negotiation. But there was something that could be done, even in the absence of two-person working and the lab report. An accident investigation into a similar recent tragedy in the US generated a 10-point checklist for safe working in confined spaces, just like working at the bottom of a manhole. So, there was a protocol in place, at least theoretically, and access was indeed needed to these sites. At the meeting, my inflexibility was complete. In the nicest possible way, I absolutely told them so. Specifically because I think of the operational need and the genuine availability of a workaround, this had all the impact of a spit in the rain. The employer knew it was a vacuous position and had a strong incentive not to be diverted. There wasn't even a kickback from our reps when I reported back the outrageous intransigence of the employer, which kind of shows the employer's judgment was right on this occasion. I was new in the job, so it taught me a useful lesson about leadership, judgment, and giving yourself room for manoeuvre. Mind you, inflexibility came far more readily and frequently from the employer's side of the table than ours. I know, I know, I would say that, wouldn't I? But logically, it stacks up, and it does so because of a growing gap in values. 30 years ago, with a much higher level of trade union membership and a higher likelihood that those in managerial positions would be familiar with unions, possibly even still being members themselves, there was much less distance between us and the employers, much more in common. Consider someone coming into a senior management position now. How much understanding of their workforce's concerns will they have? How much empathy? How much lived experience? A generational firebreak has been inserted into the narrative of industrial relations as the parent-to-child habit and expectation of union membership withered, along with concepts of full employment and long-term relationships with the same employer. And of course, the whole structure of business ownership has fundamentally changed. More localised than ever before, with SMEs making up the dominant form of employer, but increasingly remote in a global economy with decisions inexorably made by algorithm rather than human. So we now seem to have a total preoccupation with cost in the mistaken view that that's the only basis on which consumers will make purchasing decisions and an accompanying fixation with competition as the only criterion by which regulation can be deemed to be successful and customer choice maximised. Oh, enough of the macroeconomic theory, I hear you plead. OK, enough already, but my point is this. How can you negotiate with a brick wall? And what does a blanket, almost instinctive, it doesn't matter what you say, the answer is no. What does that do when you're sat on the other side of the table? Look, we're used to getting bad news from employers. Heavens, we've had more than enough of it over the years. In fact, it's usually the unions that employers run to when the news is particularly bad. That includes government. Remember the hand-wringing and please help us by ministers when Carillion went belly up? Forgive my cynicism, but I think this is more about ministers spreading the risk or avoiding fallout than genuinely reaching out for a collaborative, people-centred, problem-solving approach. As I said, we're used to getting bad news. But my bottom line has always been that if an employer can't explain why something has happened or something has to be to me, then what earthly chance have I got to explain it to my union's members?
negotiations being frustrated by unresponsive employers come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. There's the arrogant autocrat. This is my business, all mine, and whilst I might need to keep shareholders happy, I certainly don't need or want to talk to you. And their whole demeanour, body language, is a combination of the bored and the dismissive. There is nothing of value here. How can I minimise this absolute waste of my time? Then there is the thoughtlessly polite stonewalling supremo. Oh, these people have been better bred than the autocrat, whom they may find rather gauche and nouveau riche in comparison to the supremo's mastery of good manners and urbane civility. We once met one of these stonewalling supremos, who was the head of a large organisation's global supply chain. In their office stood the grandfather clock that, for a significant part of the 19th century, told the official time across the entire British Empire. This reflected the resonance, the gravitas of the position they held, and indeed of they themselves. That was like being asked if you wanted to be hung or shot, reflected a colleague after we'd been rinsed, spun and spat out. Allow me next to introduce you to Hail Fellow, Well Met, could be propping up the bar at the rugby club or a genuine diamond geezer who never forgets his market trading roots. A diamond geezer for sure, a ducker and a diver, knows his football and remembers your team, can see your point of view and would love to share but can't, just can't you see, that's a bummer and all the rest of it, but just can't. Non-male alternatives are increasingly available. Last amongst the stereotypes is your mirror image, but with one distinct difference. Their values are not the same as yours. They know the game, the music, know the dance, enjoy the choreography, want to debate, loves the cut and thrust, was a union rep once, you know, was on the left. But this really is just show. A show run by and for themselves. You're like the opposition team playing on their pitch, with their ref, their goals and nets, and their ball. But you really can't talk about negotiations, especially right now, without something on what happens when they fail. Industrial disputes have this strange place in the pantheon of public opinion, seen by some as heroic resistance or people standing up for what's right, feared or castigated by others as an irresponsible use of unaccountable power. But there is no union baron, bogeyman or woman rallying workers to the picket lines at a click of their fingers. When a strike happens, it's because any semblance of good industrial relations between workers and employers or government has failed. Legal strikes require a vote and a notice period, which come after negotiations have broken down. Then the ballot papers land on doormats and the dynamic changes. A race against time to reach a deal. Things have clearly got to be bad if it's got to this stage. Oh, and by the way, you can't legislate your way out of an industrial relations crisis. Those who believe in the new anti-strike laws being rushed through Parliament at present will soon discover this. Because if those anti-strike measures become law, it will have all the constructive impact of paraffin on a bonfire. The general rule of thumb is that industrial action is to be avoided, not outlawed. Attitudes harden. People can stop looking for solutions. Strikes destroy relationships between unions and employers. And as hard as they are to start, oh, they can be so much more difficult to settle. So a particular shout out to ACAS conciliators for the great work they do. The last thing workers providing a service want 
from delivering the mail to driving trains to teaching students to looking after patients, is to fail to do the business for their customers. But they are sure that the actions of the employer make this impossible anyway. Those on strike are the same ordinary people who have bills to pay, packages to send, trains to catch, and these ordinary people feel thoroughly disrespected. Employers can close sites, change contracts, restructure operations, even fire the entire workforce and just take back those they like the look of. Ain't that so, P&O? They can line their own pockets. The director of failed courier firm CityLink and high-profile entrepreneur Philip Green were notoriously seen to be putting their personal interests ahead of staff as their corporate vessels were going under. The only thing union members have to sell or to withdraw is their labour. And don't kid yourself, being on strike is tough. No money coming in, long periods where nothing happens, exposed to the elements, both meteorological and political. Ask the Critchley workers, sacked for simply wanting to join a union and who were on strike for over two years. But the public can be and often are very kind. Good for you! Someone has to stand up for them. I do the same, but we haven't got a union at our place. This support from people who have either been through similar upheavals or who fear they will be next massively outweighs abusive tweets and the odd jeer. If you are nervous, fearful, cold and in dispute, that encouragement is priceless. Commenting on one recent dispute, a young trade unionist said this, I voted yes in the recent ballot and unashamedly so. I want my employer to treat me with the respect and devotion I treat it and my customers. I want real job security from unscrupulous investors. I want my pension to count. I want a pay rise that reflects the profits I have helped the company to deliver. I want to be recognised not as an undervalued financial asset, but as a provider of a public service. I can't, in all consciousness, stand by and do nothing while the service implodes. So I voted yes, and I will proudly stand on the picket line. Not because I can, but because... I must. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.